In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about love and the sadness that can descend after diagnosis when coming face to face with all that is at stake. My guest today is Emily Helk. Emily was one of the very first writers I had the privilege of publishing in Wildfire. She wrote in the first love issue. I published that issue in 2016 and have since gone on to publish four love issues. Emily Helk is a writer and an artist who divides her time between Philadelphia and New York's Catskill Mountains. She has a bachelor's degree from Drew University, a master's degree from Fordham University, and is a graduate of Rutgers University, Camden's creative writing MFA program. In addition to Wildfire, her writing has been published by ABC News, Bustle, and other outlets. In addition to writing, she's proud of professional accomplishments in young adult cancer advocacy and in the arts, having worked for iconic artist William Wegman for nearly 20 years. And Emily is in the process of opening a bookstore called The Lost Bookshop. But we are going to ask her to go way back in time before all of this stuff to a time right after her cancer diagnosis. Breast cancer came for Emily when she was 28. She was diagnosed at stage one with HER2 positive breast cancer. Welcome to The Burn, Emily. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. You're here to read a piece you wrote called Heat Lightning. This is published in our 2016 Love in the Time of Cancer issue, and we also recently republished it in our anthology, Igniting the Fire Within. After you read, we'll chat. Those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Okay, Emily, I'll let you take it away. I'm in Florida, away from home and my husband, Matt, for three weeks at an artist residency. It's my first time really away since before, before the thing that happened to me. At a reception after a poetry reading, I talked to someone about a spiritualist community nearby. I have a fascination with the topic, ghosts, psychics, auras. We stand outside in the damp night air and chat about the town and the readers. And she admits to being a little that way. I'm sensitive, she says, and describes the spooky things she has predicted. Then she cautions me. If I go for a reading, I should be okay with hearing something negative. There's the good, and then there's the bad. And the swarm in my brain picks up, unsettled. Sometimes as I walk through the lush grounds of the artist's residency, a bee or some other insect will haunt me, buzz in my ear aggressively. I keep going, stiff-armed, head down, through the vegetation, not wanting any trouble. She's sensitive 
she says. I think of the time on my birthday when I went to two psychics on my way to the bar, ready to hear the fabulous things my 28th year had in store for me. They did not mention that I would be spending half the summer in Rome. They did not mention Paris. Instead, they both told me, you are headed somewhere dark, and warned me that I needed to do something or I would be consumed. Why are you so resistant to help? One demanded. I had forgotten this until I was going through a journal over a year later. Four months after those readings, I was diagnosed with cancer. I don't believe in this stuff anymore. I don't. But tonight, when she warns me to be ready for bad news, I get filled with that old feeling. All that buzzing in my head. If there's bad news coming, I know what it will be. I lose myself to the roar of tiny wings. I get a glass of wine and wander and hide in the bathroom for a while. Don't cry, not here, and keep it together, keep it together, on repeat, but the hum is furious and strong. I want Matt. I need to fall into his arms on the couch with the TV blaring and for him to fiddle with the clicker because, quote, fixing the remote is easier than fixing you, as my therapist friend says. I need his imperfect presence, the reality of his body. The perfume of him that is mild everywhere but on his pillow, so that when I roll onto it in the morning, after he's up, I can't sleep for suffocating in him. At the party, I load my plate with cruciferous vegetables, those promoters of cancer cell death, and all the colors the nutritionist says I should eat. In this moment, this is all there is, warding off death with crudite. I chomp cauliflower like a maniac can't make conversation for all the chewing. In the van ride back to the residency, I fight the nausea that I will say is from motion sickness, but is really the hive inside stirring me up. We are headed toward a column of clouds, full of an orange lightning I've never seen before. I'm used to it being white or blue. I wait for the storm that will come with this light and break the autumn swelter, but we drive for a long time and nothing happens. Just more light show and terrifying, gorgeous, hot colors. Finally, I ask the driver, is that just heat lightning? And I shock myself with how frightened I sound. He says he thinks so. When we're back, I race to my room and take one of the scored little pills I've been given by my oncologist. I do not split it in half like I normally do. And then my phone buzzes, and I see there are a hundred texts from Matt I've missed, and I panic that there's something wrong, but it's just that he's gone to a new restaurant and is loving it so much. They have a thousand different burgers and his favorite beer and macaroni and cheese. It's like this place was built in my mind, he writes. I laugh, and then cry, because I don't want to miss the places he builds in his mind, and I don't want him to be alone, ever. I don't want to be alone, ever. And that's what it is, isn't it? The end, I mean alone, forever. That's what I thought when I was a little girl, probably after my dad read me a Christmas carol. I thought you were in a box, under the ground, in the dark, alone, just waiting. Kind of like getting a PET scan, except no voice talking to you through the speaker, telling you when to breathe, when to hold it, and when to stay absolutely still. I don't tell him this. I don't tell anyone this. He is still texting gleefully. He's like a little boy. My little boy. The Ativan is starting to kick in. In the dark moments, I think that me being away right now might for, be for him a kind of practicing, 
in case I should one day be gone. Not in a way that makes me jealous or sad, but in a way that might be good for him. But he could get used to it, maybe, and then it wouldn't hurt so much. Though who would he be texting these messages to at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday? In his last one, he's begging for me to guess what the best thing of all about this restaurant is. And I know the answer, so I finally type back, it's reasonably priced. Reasonably priced is some of his highest praise. He's not cheap. He just honors fairness. I collapse in bed with Netflixed Betty Draper and the effects of the Ativan. It works so well that sometimes I'm afraid I might take the whole bottle. The heat lightning flashes all night. You are considered cured of this disease if you die from something else. In the morning, I look up heat lightning online. I always thought it was a byproduct of heat and humidity, all the energy bumping around and sparring. It turns out that's a myth a theory put forth by people sitting on their front porch watching the electricity. There are real storms, just too far away to hear. Here in Florida, they're often out over the sea, and they rage for hours, unheard and unfelt on the mainland. A few days later, Matt comes to visit me in Florida. We sit on a dock and watch dolphins roll cartwheels in the waves. We visit the spiritualist town and attend a meeting in the town hall with mediums in training working the crowd. One calls to me. She looks at my face and croaks out, oh, oh my God. I brace. But instead she fumbles around talking about my grandparents in a way that doesn't quite sound like them. After, Matt and I talk about how we both held our breath in that moment. But there are no storms. There are no swarms. Not this time. Mm. Emily, thank you so much for that. That was gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah. All right. We are going to take a quick break here. Let you, uh, I don't know, take a little drink of water. And when we come back, we will get into it. Hi, friends. There is now a wildfire book in the world. It is a big, beautiful compilation of my favorite essays from Wildfire Magazine, spanning all the way back to our first ever issue in 2016, up to the summer of 2022. This book took years to create and is literally the resource I wish I had had when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. This book is called Igniting the Fire Within, and it's made up of 50 essays that really dig into the experience of having breast cancer in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. Every stage of breast cancer is represented from DCIS to stage four, from all sorts of walks of life from all around the world. Our writers go deep and get vulnerable to heal their own experiences and to let others like you know that you're not alone you will find yourself within these pages. Get Igniting the Fire Within, stories of healing, hope, and humor inside today's young breast cancer community on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle now. Curl up with it today. Finding the wildfire community has been a vital part of my healing. When I was going through treatment, I was laser focused on what I needed to do. I obediently went through the motions and checked off all the boxes along the way. I never processed the emotional trauma of the cancer diagnosis. After treatment and looking in the rearview mirror, that is when everything hit me. I was broken. I had PTSD from my cancer experience. I needed to work through my thoughts and feelings. The writing workshop gave me the release I desperately needed 
and that's when I started to heal. I have seen my writings change from the first workshop to the second workshop. I have moved past some of the trauma and have surprised myself with growth and a couple of laughs along the way. All right. Thank you so much for that loving testimonial, Lucy. And thank you again, Emily, for that really powerful reading of a really old essay for you. So thanks for that. Thanks for going back in time. Yes, it was pretty strange going back in time. It's um, just about 10 years old, that essay. Yeah, I. you might be the first person I've had read that I published so far back in the early days of wildfire. So I'm just curious to start there. Like, what what is this experience like for you? Had you even revisited this essay? I, I've actually thought about this essay a lot over the years, um, in particular, one line. Okay. Um, if there's, yeah, <laughs> this is the line. If there's bad news coming, I know what it will be. Mm. Uh, in those moments, the bad news, the only bad news I could possibly imagine was cancer related. Um, and I don't know, maybe five or six years after I wrote this essay, I had a kind of breakthrough moment in therapy wherein I realized, oh, cancer is not the last bad thing that will ever happen in my life. <laughs> shit <laughs> um, that doesn't seem fair but yeah <laughs> i know i know it certainly doesn't but um it was uh really kind of revelatory for me um and i i considered changing the line actually mm. um but because the piece is in present tense and it is so immediate and so tied to that precise moment it felt much more honest to keep keep that um little bit of uh little bit of um falseness or naivete uh in there um because of course cancer's not the only thing that will happen in our lives that's difficult um and it certainly isn't the only thing in my life since you know since I wrote this so um it's a really interesting little thing that's kind of been just bouncing around my brain for several years. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm really glad that it's there and that you wrote this at that time, as opposed to, you know, if you sat down now and recalled this story, you know, certain things would be through the lens of now, you know, and what you know now, having lived 10 years beyond then. But I love that it captures what was true at the time. And it's so relatable in that, you know, that that our awareness of, of quote unquote, the bad things, you know, broadens and shifts and changes and that other bad things could happen. And maybe, you know, back then it would have been a relief to have some other bad thing happen. And now there's a different scale, you know, for looking at those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. So I love that you said that you you find yourself still thinking about that line and it kind of rattles around. And I'm just curious if you do kind of where cancer sits in your life these days, what, what survivorship kind of looks like to you. And I know that you also do or have done advocacy. And I'm wondering if that plays a role these days. Yeah. Um, so I'm now um, a couple of months away today, actually two months today away from 11 years since my diagnosis um and it's changed so much um 
I still think about it every day. Um, when I was in the middle of treatment, I asked a 20 year survivor, do you still think about it every day? And she said, no. Um, so that's my, <laughs> when I get to 20 years, that's my goal. Um, I still think about it every day. It still informs so much of my life um, and who I am. Um, but I think about cancer um, as a moon. It circles me. Sometimes it's a tiny little sliver of a crescent. Sometimes it's full. Sometimes it's a harvest moon that takes up the whole sky. But it's a moon. It's not the sun. Mm-hmm. So it's not everything. And it's taken a very long time for it to not be everything. Yeah. Um, hmm. And it's strange. And I held on. You know, I think I it was a really important part of my identity for a long time, particularly, as you mentioned, doing advocacy work. Um, really sort of uh, hyper, put it all into hyper focus. Um And after that intensity of, you know, years of advocacy, having feel, you know, feeling like, okay, it's time to step back a little bit from this role. And I went to graduate school for my MFA in creative writing. And it was kind of a struggle of how do I reveal this about myself? Do I reveal this about myself going from working full time in advocacy to a place where nobody knew anything about me, including this thing that was the entirety of sort of my professional life and a lot of my personal life too. Um, So it was sort of a a really fast gear change in terms of how I present myself to the world and my identity um, and my in survivorship. Um, I don't know if I recommend it, (laughs) Um, but it was definitely, I don't do anything by half measures, I guess. So um, it was... I think important for me to see a different sort of branch of my life and kind of move out on a different Mm -hmm. branch. Yeah. And, and what privilege it is to get to decide if someone will know this chapter of your life or not. Um, You know, since you're living no evidence of disease, you can make those kinds of choices. And I remember my first new friend post-diagnosis and it, it was a little disorienting that they didn't already know it and that they hadn't been experiencing it with me kind of as it unfolded, but that I could either tell them or not. Um, but I wonder with you, you know, and especially in creative writing, do you find that cancer, I don't know, crops up in your writing in surprising ways or, or ways that you were like, no, I was going to be more in charge of that, but here you are anyway. Mm-hmm. That's a lovely question. Um, I feel like writing is, that's writing all the time, is that everything is just coming True. out and I, and it's just there and I can't, <laughs> it's just happening. Um, and it's about sort of like letting it out and then sculpting it in, in the ways that you want. Um, and so it's, you know, cancer is intrinsic to who I am. Uh, I, you know, the things that I experienced and learned during the years of treatment um, will, will always come out. Um, and I think, I think I used to feel more concerned about what I was revealing unintentionally or um, what will someone be able to glean about me um, and now 
I don't care as much, I yeah. guess. <laughs> um, which is, which is nice, which is nice. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, maybe there's a little of that that comes with maturity. You know, when this whole thing happened to you, you're in your 20s. And as we age, we kind of realize what's within our control and what stuff kind of isn't our business, like someone else or something else will emerge, you know, and, and just let it have its own run, I guess. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to your story. I'm thinking about the, those, those nights, those Ativan nights. I remember them so well. And that fear of leaving people, you know, and leaving them before you're ready. And I used to worry about that so much. And I'm also in my 11th year of survivorship now. And of course, I still worry about that. But there's something for me that feels like, you know, it, that's out of my control. So if something like that happens and and these people that I love so much have to live without me, I need to trust that they can do that. Has has it shifted like that for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've done a, a lot of work around death, um, both personally and academically, uh, thinking about sort of how we approach death in our culture and um, how we talk about it or more, more often don't talk about it. Um, and so I've done sort of a lot of thinking and writing and, um, and sort of somatic practices about, about approaching death. And so I feel um, more at peace with it. Um, I feel more um, that I have the tools now to kind of prepare myself, my family. Um, I have a will. A lot of people don't when they're don't have children and are young still. Um, so I have a will. I have my funeral wishes documented. Um, and all of doing all of that was really important to me. Um, in thinking about this worry of who's left behind and, and what are they, what are they doing? Um, mm -hmm. Definitely all kind of came into even sharper focus when my, my dad died at the end of 2021 um, quite suddenly. Um, and so that sort of was a, another round, so to speak of doing this work for myself of like thinking, okay, now I've, now I've been through, um, you know, a serious loss, death of my dad, and what did I learn from this, and how do I take that learning, um, you know, really take it to heart and think about how I want things to be for my for my husband, for my siblings, um, in those in those difficult moments. Yeah. Not that I can control it all, right? That's always my wish. No, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like you're finding ways to control what you can control. Um, and maybe that lets it, lets you let go of the rest of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I found that having, you know, having those small things that it doesn't feel so amorphous and terrifying if I can say, you know, 
I want there to be horses walking around my funeral. <laughs> you know, I um, I hope that's yeah. on the list. I love that. <laughs> it is on the okay. list. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, what would you say in this, you know, 11th year, if anything, is your biggest survivorship challenge or most kind of top of mind topic when you think of of your own cancer experience now? Oh, that's hard. Um, I, I think probably twofold. It's it's um, it's dealing with the continued uh, physical effects of cancer, physical and emotional, mental effects of cancer. Um, and thinking about, um, what comes next health-wise, uh, that's always, uh, you know, I know cancer, right? Um, I feel a certain comfort with the language, with the, uh, the players, so to speak. Um, but as I, as I said earlier, it's not going to be the last bad thing and it's not going to be the last health challenge. Um, so it's figuring out, um, you know, having a complicated health history and, and how to manage that with everything moving forward. So mm -hmm. there's the long range physical and mental health impacts of having cancer, especially having cancer very young. And then there's just thinking about how do I live in this body? What else is this body got cooking for me um, that I'm going to have to face later on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I hear all of that. Well, I want to switch gears uh, in the few minutes we have left and hear about your new project, your new baby. Can you tell us a little bit about owning a bookstore and what that's like? Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually hoping to open in four days. Um, it's been it's been quite a process. It's been we're opening in a tiny town in the Catskills uh, in New York, which is beautiful, um, mountainous region full of amazing nature and wonderful food and wonderful communities. Um, so I've been coming to this area since 2015 and love it so much and always wanted to own a bookstore. Um, during the pandemic, um, you know, everything kind of changed professionally and started thinking about it more. Um, I also, my husband and I were hoping to start a family. I had, um, difficulty with that. I had a number of losses, uh, pregnancy losses. And uh, at the third one, the third loss, I um, decided, okay, you know what? I'm going to be serious about this bookstore thing and ordered this giant binder called How to Start an Independent Bookstore. And um, that was about a year and a half plus ago. Um, and so it was just a, a wild journey of looking for a a location in this very tiny town that I absolutely love and have to be in. Um, and I found a location. We've been um, renovating it since January and we're just about done. And so I've been ordering books and doing pop-ups and all kinds of things like that. And it's really just joyful work. Um, when I talk to people who, who have started stores, um, they'll say things like, I love cleaning the toilets here. I just love doing it all. And so I'm very excited um, for that. And 
and meeting people and talking about books. When I when I do that now at the different pop up events, I I get chills talking mm. about books with people. Um, so it's really wonderful and exciting and. I'm exhausted right now, but I'm trying to just hold on to every minute of it and and really exist in every minute of it and not get too swept up in the craziness that's happening as we try to mm. open. Well, congratulations. That is all incredible. I love that you were able to order this giant binder. That sounds amazing and daunting and everything else in between. Um, I guess my final question for you is why why do you think in your own words that that storytelling matters for a community why is this important to you to to create this space for books when people can go on Amazon nowadays and you know they're doing other things besides maybe thinking about their community bookstore yeah absolutely um it's so interesting Com- independent bookstores you know after many years of really getting the crap kicked out of them by Barnes and Noble and Borders have had this kind of amazing renaissance recently um, because Amazon has killed Barnes and Noble and Borders. So the sort of big fish that ate indie bookstores got eaten by a bit even bigger fish, um, which kind of made some room for indie bookstores to start start uh, a resurgence. Uh, I think particularly after the pandemic, um, many of us felt this really renewed need for a community that was both supportive and challenging, you know, intellectually challenging, um, a safe place to go and learn new things and interact with people and um, experience the pleasure of books. Uh, it's I've called my store The Lost Bookshop, and our tagline is books for getting lost and finding your way. Um, and I, that tagline is referring to the ability uh, of books, of stories to both suck us in and help us escape whatever is going on in our lives, if that's what we need, or to help us wrestle with what's going on in our lives, if that's what we need. Um, so, you know, when I was in the middle of chemo and couldn't read anything, the book I read was Charlotte's Web, and it meant so much to me. Um, to be able to just go to this farm and, you know, re-experience this book I loved as a child and and have this, be in this idyllic world with these wonderful characters. Um, and by this, you know, on the other side of the coin is I've read so many books that are difficult and challenging, but have helped me to really understand who I am and and what I'm struggling with and how how to move forward. So we're going to have lots of community recommendations of what those specific books are. Um, Of course, they're different for everybody, but um, we all need a book that's going to suck us in really hard and not let go um, at different times in our lives. And we all need to wrestle with the things we need to wrestle with. So Mm -hmm. no one better than than the community to make those recommendations. Absolutely. I love that. And I love that bookstores provide this gathering space to have these kinds of conversations, to be surrounded by words and and have that, you know, tangible right there where you can touch it, open it, smell it, get lost in it. So I really, I love that you're doing that. If I wasn't um, up to my neck in my little project, I'd probably be wanting to do yours. So I'm, I'm very enamored with it. So 
Thank you for doing this work, Emily. I love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on and for this uh, time traveling back to 2016, your heat lightning story. For everyone listening, you can find that in the Love in the Time of Cancer 2016 issue in our archives. Emily, where can people find you and your work online? You can find me at The Lost Bookshop. So we're on social media at, at Lost Bookshop NY. The website is thelostbookshop.com. Uh, my identity is quite entwined with this <laughs> with this bookstore project at the moment. So that's the best place to find me. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much. So appreciated having you on today. Thank you. It was so great to talk to you. Well, I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our 40-plus issues in the Wildfire Archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There's no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. All right, here is your writing prompt. Your prompt is haunted. The worries that keep me up at night. The worries that keep me up at night are, I want you to write about that feeling of being haunted. Set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping or editing. See what needs to come up and come out. And if you want more, head over to wildfirecommunity.org free for more prompts. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.